I like the structural path we're on here. As long as we help Ukraine with the weapons they need and the economic support, they will fight to the last person. Hello everyone, Dr. James Boswell returns to the show to discuss the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, which he's been covering on his Wall of Controversy blog. I start out by asking James about when he first started paying attention to Ukraine as a country during the revolution of 2014. I was thinking about this, um, you know, yesterday, like before, you know, coming on, like thinking, what, what was I thinking at this time, you know, and it occurred to me that a lot of the information I was getting was coming from um, Webster Tarpley. Um, yeah. Who I'm sure you followed. Um, yes, historically, yeah. I have one of his books. Yeah. on 9-11 synthetic terror yes which was i mean i don't know i've not read it but it was almost considered you know the the sort of the acme of <laughs> uh books about 9-11 wasn't it I, um the I mean, acme got, of it, books i don't what what is i mean i know what acme is but oh, oh sorry like you know like the, the 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 you know the highest expression of or something um like um, oh right I know um, some people, like, a, a copy was given to me for the, the cost of one pound by someone who was uh, selling them and, and thought it was so good that they were they were certainly describing it as the best book of 9-11 and selling it at this ridiculous discounted price because they were keen to get it out there, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and it was getting good reviews, you know, from, um, from even mainstream, I think, uh, to some extent. Um, and, of course, um, sorry, we're going a bit off track, but, but basically Tarpley um, focused on the drills, of 9 11 that was mm. his and he was very much a specialist on false flag events and at the time he was very much a familiar figure you know in in in, in these areas um, yeah now just i'm, I'm just going to reject that the aesthetic of that book he actually put the pictures of the 19 hijackers up alongside pictures of the plotters of the gunpowder plot in the 17th century, the blue of parliament. And he was drawing an historical comparison of both of them, both sets of men being patsies to allow for imperial expansion. So the gunpowder plot was what allowed for the uh, consolidation of British power and the oppression domestically of Catholics, and then leading into the expansion into the British empire. And Tarpley saying the same thing about 9-11, that uh, it's domestic oppression and the blaming of not Catholics, but Muslims abroad to justify this crusade in the Middle East. So that was his his thesis of it, of false flags running through history. Yeah, well, uh, um, I've, I've heard Tarpley talk about um, um, the gunpowder plot. Um, I, my, I jokingly have sometimes called it 511. <laughs> um, <you> know, <laughs> yeah, very good. It's, it's interesting, you know, how the debate on these things is so closed down if you go on to, you know, sort of Wikipedia, which is, you know, notoriously bad for this sort of stuff. But you look up gunpowder plot, you know, an event that happened, what is it, I don't know, 400 years ago or something. Mm. And you can't, you can't even get uh, a discussion <laughs> of that side of the events, you know, even centuries later, you know, sort of suppressed. Um, yeah, but I think it was a Catholic that wrote a book about it sometime after looking at it from that angle of being a British government false flag or an English government false flag. And yeah. I think that was, I think what struck me as, as interesting was the suppression of discussion around it at the time, which maybe that's not that surprising for the 17th century, but that it did enter into the English mythos and that it was like a compulsory celebration. Bonfire night was a, really a state event for a long period afterwards. 
the the parallels with 9-11 are fair enough i think in a way in that sense again you know that 9-11 is this major event in well, certainly american history uh, arguably world history and you know so one of these things that we must never forget that like you say led to kind of a religious um i don't know enemy uh or not led to it but you know um framed up a, a religious enemy um for political purposes um so it was tarpy was talking about the events in ukraine he was one of the first people talking about it really and he basically was saying quite openly on his world crisis radio show his weekly show um he was covering it and he was basically saying look you know this is getting out of hand and he was calling yanukovych to clamp down on these on what he was already basically calling a coup really i suppose or about you know um um and he he was calling out the the protesters for not being these sort of liberal-minded protesters that we were being told um certainly not throughout and that the you know that there was this contingent within it that was extremely far right that that it got this history going back to the second world war and collaboration with the nazis and so on and all that was new to me to be honest obviously i started looking into it and following it at that point really yeah and then you know and then it really kicked off with the um with the massacre i mean it's as far as i'm aware it's still not and probably never will be entirely resolved who who was firing the the shots at the at the crowd no it's contested between that the ukrainian government was doing it to suppress the protests or right-wing nationalist elements were doing it because they were seen leaving the square carrying musical instruments in large cases yeah so read uh, what you want to that and there has been analysis done of the shooting patterns and everything which is quite difficult for the the, you know, the average person to decipher but yeah that, that they're the two competing groups and it does seem like the on the who benefits side of it that the right-wing nationalists I heard good cases that they were behind at least some of the shooting going on in, in the Maidan Square absolutely and a parallel case that springs to mind um I don't know if you know about the events in Venezuela I think it was 2002 yeah where the bush government attempted to overthrow hugo chavez that's right and that was sparked by um these sort of random shootings on a protest mm. um, where they were crossing a bridge and it transpired um that that was definitely a false flag i mean you know it was basically being blamed on um either pro chavez people or or the police i can't quite remember now and um it was used as a as an excuse for this already you know in the works takeover military-led takeover by basically kind of business guy type person yeah it's a consistent theme right and the thing in venezuela got very well exposed but webster tarpley whatever you think of him as a researcher or don't think of him as a researcher he's a brave guy like he went to syria when it all kicked off there in in 2011 and one of the things he was reporting back was that there were these strange assassinations going on where people were just being randomly shot from rooftops and i recall the same thing in iran i think it was 2009 when they'd have the the green movement there and there was a particular woman who became kind of the face of that because she was shot but when you look at the detail she was shot like nowhere near the protest doing nothing to do with it whatsoever and just randomly shot from a rooftop somewhere and um, so it, there are these strange assassinations that go on around these movements that are tied into it but aren't necessarily what they appear on the surface yeah that's a very good point actually exactly again i mean it's controversial 
but there, again, there is evidence that, that that was done deliberately to provoke essentially a, a kind of civil war, really, I suppose. I think you could say much the same in Ukraine, really. It does appear that it was done deliberately by these right-wing factions to essentially what, what it did was kick off a, a civil war, really. So, yeah, there's a lot of parallels, I think. Yeah, and I think people have generally been unaware of the level of violence that kicked off at that time, where of the 14,000 people who died, estimated died, between 2014 and the, if you the official start of the war, the majority of them were in that early period, in the 2014 to 15 period. Yeah, you're talking about the, the civilians in Donbass now? Yeah. So, so basically, we, we had this moment in Kiev where, let's put it this way, right, one of these right-wing leaders has more recently cut his name is uh, Yevhen Karas and he's like the the head of these kind of black shirt C14 gangs they're called and he's come out and he said you know if it wasn't for people like us essentially the Maidan the Euro Maidan as it was called then um, would have been and this is his words uh, a gay parade or gay rights parade you know um, i.e. was going nowhere uh, politically you know and we essentially hijacked it. And he's very proud of that, of course. Mm. And, and I think without, without a doubt, that's easy to see that that's basically what, what happened was that it started out as, the, you know, a lot of the people on the streets were in favor of uh, the European Union and so on, hence the Euro Medan. Um, they got their flags and so on. And, you know, they were looking west. I mean, Ukraine's a very divided country, you know, since its modern formation, it, it's always been sort of east-west divide the western side of it looking west and, and the eastern side of it feeling more russian and these people were basically feeling like you know we want to we want to move towards europe and then you got this other faction which was you know a very significant presence uh, and a very brutal presence of a mix of different i mean you, you know there's not just one set of ultra nationalists as, as they're called in our media um in these in these you know in these protests and in and within these um ukrainian um, political groups you know you got um Svoboda, which is a, a party that was formerly called the social nationalist party so there's a kind of uh, clue in the name there i think and mm. its original symbol was a wolfsangle which is that um kind of variant of a swastika basically and they were in a way they were kind of the m more moderate political force uh, in those the right-wing faction of the maidan protests and then alongside them you'd got pravi sector uh, right sector which was run by uh dimitri yarash and these guys were like stormtroopers or something you know they were just paramilitary group and they were very much leading as far as i could see anyway they were very much leading the sort of the violence against the um the police and so on there was a lot of setting light to buildings and stuff wasn't there well famously in odessa a bunch of people were basically murdered well, by being yes pushed into a building yes that 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 comes that comes after doesn't it i, I think you 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 have the coup and these people basically gather, gain power so the leaders of all these parties and groups and so on they actually get into parliament at that point so you see who are the beneficiaries of this event and they are very much these ultra nationalist groups basically they, they, they gain an enormous amount of power um at that moment and then you get this massacre that happens in in odessa where 
people in Odessa who, which I think is more Russian friendly, and the anti, you know, Medan people were protesting there and basically got herded into a trade union building and surrounded by these ultranationalists who torched the building. And I mean, this is on film and stuff. So, yeah, it's not ambiguous. All of the Western media, including the BBC, were very reluctant to report it unambiguously at the time. They say, well, if something happened, we don't really know. There was even a report of someone, an eyewitness seeing someone inside the building try and throw a Molotov cocktail out and it bouncing back off the pane of glass. That seems like the most incredibly unlikely explanation for, yeah. for the, the whole thing. It was actually ridiculous. Um, so, but there was this reticence to blame Ukrainian nationalists in the Western media at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely preposterous. That, that, that carries on. I mean, if you type in Odessa massacre into Wikipedia, it redirects you automatically. And what you get is Odessa clashes. <laughs> Right. Which is incredible yeah. when you think about it. clashes. Yeah. I mean, like whatever you think this is, it's it's a massacre, right? Forty six people died in that building. It's such a pivotal point as well because it's what is meant to have really scared the people in in eastern Ukraine into greater levels of resistance. Thanks. So, well, hang on, this is going to happen to us. Absolutely, without question. I think it's clear that happened, and understandably. I mean, one of the things that I find so puzzling about this, really, because you know I have followed it closely, is that. Most of the people, most of the liberals I know, and that's most of the people I know, you know, I tend to know liberal people, they just don't get this. They don't seem somehow to be able to put themselves in the shoes of these people in the eastern parts of Ukraine who are now target, being targeted, basically, in a variety of ways, you know, and quite literally in the case of these people in, in Odessa. How, how can you not see that it makes sense for them to try and get away somehow, um, whether that be literally get away? And lots of people, became refugees. I, I believe a million refugees from Donbass fled to Russia during this time. So, or, you know, to politically get away in some sense and have these referenda, which I think happened in the two regions of Donbass, but also happened in, I think, Mariupol and in Crimea. You don't have to believe that the results of these referenda are, you know, an absolutely accurate reflection of, of, of View. I mean, it'd be, I don't know, I mean, it'd be very hard, I think, under the circumstances, to conduct a, uh, a truly accurate poll, even if you wanted to. But I don't think there's any question that these people were genuinely terrified about what was going on and mm. desperate to escape. Well, it would be akin to the British government uh, in response to Bloody Friday, just shelling Catholic areas of Belfast and Derry, okay, and killing like... 10,000 people. Yeah. You mean, if you think about it, that, that, that that's the comparative, like, so obviously Bloody Sunday was a, a terrible massacre, but it was in the tens of people there. And there were others of, of similar quantity at the time. Uh, but it, the Ukrainian government gets a pass for killing tens, over 10,000 of its own people. So, yeah, I mean, after, after these, these, um, particularly the two regions of Donbass, after they declared their independence, Obviously, Poroshenko, who'd come to power president, um, basically, you know, uh, encouraged and uh, armed these um, um, ultranationalists to go and, you know, uh, and one of which is the, the famed um, Azov battalion to fight these, uh, these separatists, as they were, were called. So, yeah, like you say, it's like they, you know, they basically they, they started shelling their own people. 
you know, it, it, in a sense, is the civil war. But to, to my mind, it's it's very clear, as with the Irish conflict, you know, who's really the aggressor in this. And it, I can't see how you can think it's the people of the Donbass who, who were doing anything really other than trying to defend themselves from a very nasty uprising of ultranationalism that had a history of quite literally outdoing the Nazis in terms of its atrocities during the Second World War. And that was quite acceptable to talk about right up until the outbreak of the war. It was, it was quite acceptable for mainstream media to talk about Ukraine's far right problem and the history of the far right in Ukraine and how far right leaders like Stefan Bandera would still have their faces on banners being paraded through the streets. And it, it seemed to become like a totally verboten topic as soon as the war broke out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And of course, ever since what they've done is they've basically created this illusion that somehow if you talk about these things, it makes you a Putinist or a pro-Russian mm. propagandist mm. or something. You know, it's just more evidence of how easily they can stifle debate in the West, which is we've supposedly got free press and so on. And yet we can't openly discuss the blatantly obvious, really. You know, so we will have situations where I can remember Channel 4 News, Matt Fry, isn't it? Matt Fry. He went and interviewed um, Dimitro Yarish, if I remember correctly. Now, he was the leader of the right sector, you know, so he's a, a militant ultranationalist, I'm being polite. And he just basically gives him a softball interview barely really asked him what, what he actually stands for. Um, he's given him a platform, essentially. You know, there was another one where um, a BBC reporter was embedded with the Azov battalion. Didn't tell you who the Azov battalion are. Didn't tell you that they, at that time, they were operating under a badge that's got not only the false angle, um, which it still has, but also the Black Sun, which is a Nazi symbol that I think you find in Castle Vivelsburg. There's one on the floor, I think, isn't there? It's obviously, a, there's a sort of a cultist side to uh, the Nazis. So, you know, these, these people have resurrected this, this bizarre symbol and put it on their flag. There's no question what they are about. <laughs> and yet somehow the media in the West has been neutralized really, or whatever. I don't know why, I don't know why they, I don't know why they refuse. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it, really, that you can't talk about hmm. outright uh, Nazism when you see it. Well, I think the feeling was coming out of the COVID era when this all kicked off and you see like the 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 profiles of I've had my you know what and the masked faces on on Facebook switch seamlessly over to the blue and yellow. And then the, the retort to that from the nonconformist was the I'm for the current thing badges put up on, on Facebook, which is recognizing this shift had taken place about the new thing that had this religious significance behind it, the new crusade that we were all to get behind where questions of morality were absolutely crystal clear. And there was no need to discuss the, the rights and wrongs of anything or what may or may not be efficacious in lowering the level of violence. And it was just a seamless transition almost. And, uh, to me, I can certainly understand why intelligent minds might differ on the subject of COVID, right? Like, it's not like any of us spend a lot of time thinking about virology prior to 2020, unless you're one of the you know, people that did. Uh, but 
Ukraine seemed like that much simpler to me to understand that wars have many fathers and it's clearly you know Putin might not be a good guy but he's not the only not good guy in this whole equation and this very simplistic way of thinking about the whole thing with the harking back to Adolf Hitler and so on I was quite surprised how that took not only was present but how it took over and even I suppose because Putin is the ostensible aggressor in this that seemed to be enough to neutralize criticism yeah very true but it goes back if you go back to 2014 because I was talking about this in 2014 with um you know where I work and uh, I remember I still remember a colleague there you know intelligent guy um he's doing a PhD in physics or whatever I'd said to him we were talking about uh, what was going on at the start of the war when if you remember at the time they were already talking about a Russian invasion see that's been forgotten now but they were when it clearly wasn't and I was basically saying it's not a Russian invasion you know that's not what's happened I sort of drew attention to these ultra nationalist groups including I think Azov and you know I basically said to him you know how how can you you know how can you basically stand on the side of of these Nazis and he said and I'd more or less quote I'd rather be a Nazi than a Russian and it just stopped me in my tracks because I thought I, I don't I don't understand it I don't understand you can reach a mindset like that really I mean like when I've basically presented you with the evidence and rather than refute my evidence your stance is just to take the side of something that I thought we'd all agreed was basically the greatest evil in modern history yeah I've noticed that there is some it, it affects people on some psychological way and the, the way COVID affected people in a deeply psychological way and spoke to primal fears of viruses I think this this situation has another kind of effect of barbarians at the gate like there is a kind of inherent anti-russian racism underpinning a lot of what's gone on right in in this of the idea that these hordes from the east are going to pour into fortress europe and they're they're ruining this civilization we've built up here they're not playing by the rules of civilization it's staggering isn't it really i i find it staggering because i've, I've always had a certain kind of sympathy towards russia because well, partly just because I love its culture. Just personally, I you know I I, I love the, the 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 culture that came out of Germany first, if you like, and then Russia second. You know, I think they're the two most amazing countries in a way mm -hmm. in the world. <laughs> so you know, I find it hard to understand this kind of antipathy towards um, Russia, or oh, certainly in the Western world, uh, this antipathy towards uh, to, towards Russia. And I never have understood it really. I never understood it. As a kid when i lived through the um the cold war but the cold war was much more sane than than this because um there was an ideology and clearly horrible things had taken place in the soviet union i never believed for a minute that the soviet union had any intention of rolling its tanks into western europe but people really did i i, I mean it's it's kind of like that now it, we have basically recreated the same mindset but in such a peculiar way because there really isn't actually any difference now between Russia and the West you know politically hardly at all <laughs> and what's what's the what's the significant difference really um that they supposedly don't like gay rights as much as we do or something like this I mean this is this is incredibly minor scale compared to you know the idea that like one group is capitalist and the other group is communist yeah, it's not, there's not the same economic division. I, I don't think there's any really notes for one. I think 
See, I would say like the economic structure of society is really the important thing far beyond whether you have a democracy or a monarchy or anything else, because the economic structure is what's going to determine whether you can put food on your plate and a roof over your head and that kind of thing, and not whether you your great leader is called prime minister, president or king. But I think actually that's not the general perception, okay, because we make a kind of religion out of government. Uh, and therefore, there is this idea that the most important thing about your country is not how the economy is run, it's about do you have a democracy or not? And Russia is seen as having only a very ostensible democracy because you have Putin who has become like a czar-like figure. And there's maybe some truth in that in terms of assassinations of political opponents and his continued reign in power. So I don't think Russia is seen as having transitioned to the lofty height of democracy, which we in the West have have achieved. Now that, that you know, in real money, that might be garbage, right? It might not be worth anything. But that's that's why I think there is this continued kind of looking down upon the East on a on the level of the population. And geopolitically, the way I conceived of this from the start, I'm actually just doing a podcast episode on the Russian Revolution at the moment, but I just think ever since um ever since the French armies were turned back, Russia has been sort of stepped onto the European board as a major player. It took the um, the land to the north, previously under Peter the Great, uh, where Sevastopol is now, and then Catherine the Great went down and took the Crimea, and Russia had access to ports for the first time, and it became, and through the colonization of the East, so when the British Empire is essentially colonizing the United States, what became the United States, uh, Russia is colonizing all of Siberia, and it becomes this massive, it steps onto the European board as a massive power player. And Western powers have just periodically needed to tame the bear. So you see that in the Crimean War, you see it when they use the British ally of the Japanese to use them as a proxy force to keep Russian ambitions in the Far East in check. And then during the First World War, they kind of played off against Germany. Whatever role the Western powers did or didn't have in the Russian Revolution, the communists come in and that really cripples the Russian economy in a way it cannot compete with Britain and the United States then in terms of economic power for the rest of the 20th century. And then you see it again in Afghanistan, using the the Mujahideen as a proxy force to bring down the Soviet empire. And, and I shouldn't miss out um, with what the Harvard economists went in did in uh, ripping apart the Russian economy during the, the 90s to pillage as much as possible. So I just think we were kind of due another round of the taming of the bear and Ukraine seems to be it. Because it's much easier. You don't really want a direct confrontation of Russia. It's too big and powerful for that. So you want to ideally use somebody else to do the fighting yeah that's that's a good summary i think you missed out um i would say you missed out hitler <laughs> yeah i did yeah you, you know because he was bankrolled by the americans and you know sort of supported by us as well to some extent to um to do the same job really yeah you could look at the wars that way i mean i'm i'm going through the first World war at the minute and, and looking really at the Pythidius albion theory that the british were much more nefarious and involved in getting the whole thing going and I, you know, you, you could see it that way, right? You could see it as Britain ostensibly being allied with Russia, but really setting Russia and Germany against each other to neutralize their two major political opponents, imperial opponents. Well, that's very much the way Tarpley would look at it, going back to Tarpley. I, I mean, he, he had a theory that, that basically the British would always play off, you know, they were the top empire and they'd always play off numbers two and three. Yeah, and and I'm, I'm cautious about interpreting Intent, people's intentions in history based on what worked out. So irrespective of what people intended at that time, that is what worked out. That's how it played out, this this continuous demolition job on Russia. I mean, I mean, my feeling, I'm not claiming to know a lot about this history 
at all. But my, my feeling from what having looked into it is that, that basically the, you know, Hitler and the Nazis in Germany were a project that got out of hand, really. You know, they, they became a threat to the empire itself, having been kind of used as a cat's paw by the empire to, as you say, keep down a competitor. Mm. You know, so like you say, you, you can't, you know, when you do when you play these sort of games, you can't always know what the outcome is going to be. So you end up fighting your own um, prophecy, yeah. essentially. I mean, I mean, the same thing in principle could happen here if it got out of hand, really, because in many ways, you know, we're dealing with similar kind of ideology, and there is an ideology in in this ultra nationalism. In well, that is that is an interesting point, right? Because it wouldn't be the only time, as you say, if that theory is true of the Nazis, and I'm, it is something I've one I find quite compelling and interesting, uh, but it's certainly the case with the Mujahideen and ultimately the Taliban that, yeah, of course, it's comical to look back at the films like Rambo 3 from the 1980s, how they're, they're supporting the brave freedom fighters in Afghanistan and Ronald Reagan um, talking and giving his glowing assessments of these men are freedom fighters. Do you remember Sandy Gore? No. Oh, perhaps you're too young. I don't, I don't remember Sandy Gore, no. So 10 o'clock news, ITV when that all that was happening sandy gall would be out there if i remember right it was sandy gall praising to the heights these um you know these 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 rebels fighting off the right. soviet depressants and he and they would tell you and even as a kid i i could feel that this was wrong you know yeah. and they, 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 he'd basically be saying you know they're making these russians read the quran you know on, on the on the pain of death basically and it's like how the hell can that be good <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I remember being kids, like, and we were into action films. We weren't into geopolitics, but we were into action films and Sylvester Stallone. And then a friend of mine commented, like, yeah, that Rocky Free thing. I'm not too sure about that. They're supporting the Islamic fanatics that are the, the Taliban. That, yeah, it's a bit of a strange one, that. And we were only like 12 years old. But even we sort of saw there could be a problem here. And so what you've got is, a, I think, 23 year turnaround from the the u.s involvement there not even that really they were still supporting the taliban after that um to from from being active supporters what am i talking about 23 i've, I've grossly exaggerated that more like a 15 year turnaround between mm. if not even that uh, between active support to out and out war so what that would imply then if you follow the logic at some point in the 2030s the united states is going to invade ukraine to put down the azov battalion neo-nazis after major terrorist incidents in the united states i mean is that the, the dark future we're looking into well it could be couldn't it i mean obviously this, these these islamist groups are, you know run by people like bin laden we know that they were cia operated groups we know that Savigny Brzezinski was behind the scenes, um, you know, getting it all going. And, but I think we also know that their progress into the Middle East and, um, you know, what they've been doing in Syria um, is not entirely just them being bad eggs. You know, we've, we've obviously supported them to those mm. ends as well. So we kind of use these people periodically, yeah. I suppose. We, we used them in Libya as well, obviously, to, to bring down Gaddafi. Um, you know, we've got timber sycamore mm. was you know the operation to to um, back these so so-called moderate rebels in syria so it's it's kind of hard to judge to what extent these people are, are rogue i suppose and to what extent you know we're, we're just using them as uh, covertly uh, manipulating them um, as our cat's paw whenever we need to and the same thing could happen potentially you know regardless of 
you know how, how uh, successful these uh, Ukrainian uh, nationalists are likely to be, and I, I think the answer to that is that they're not going to be very successful because I don't think things are going very well for them. Certainly, they look at it as an opportunity to spread their own ideology. You know, they they very much look at it like that. I've heard again that guy Yevon Karas, I think it mm -hmm. was, saying exactly that. Basically, you know that this is our chance. You know, and then there's the guy who formed the Azov Battalion. Um, Beletsky, mm -hmm. and he he says, uh, you know, he's got that that famous quote: uh, "Ukraine's mission is to lead the white races of the world in a final crusade against the Semite-led Untermenschen." Right. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's you know that's what they, some of these people really believe this. Mm. Um, and of course, at the start of the um, the Ukraine, um, the original uh, battle for Donbass, lots of extreme right sympathizers basically flooded in to uh, to help these um these groups you know came in to help uh, azov and mm. so on i mean azov are only one as well of course there's there's, there's actually multiple of these extreme right-wing uh, military groups that formed yeah you wonder how it could spread um one thing i wanted to ask the reason i was like your sense of the accuracy of predictions about the conflict okay my own the one podcast i did in this looked at everything up until the outbreak of the war of the russian invasion uh so really establishing a sort of context and then i don't know anything about military tactics okay but what i've come to conclude is that neither does anyone else uh, by listening to people over the past year Be because I think it's true to say that a lot of people in the sort of libertarian anti-war movement kind of missed the invasion in terms of like they were poo-pooing the idea that Putin was about to invade um, up until the point it happened. Um, so that was actually, you know, score one for the uh, the people who always think the sky is falling uh, to begin with. Although it wasn't universally missed, like uh, Stephen Cohen in his book, War of Russia, question mark, did predict that this was going to be the way it could potentially play out. That there was going to be a... Uh, an escalating conflict of Russia over the idea of Ukraine either becoming uh, becoming a NATO member, either de facto or de jure. Um, but looking at the uh, predictions that have been made, obviously there's a whole bunch of predictions that Ukraine are always on the verge of victory and driving the Russians out, and it's going to be this one big offensive. And those predictions never worked out to be true. But equally, the kind of predictions made by the likes of Colonel Douglas McGregor about the pincer movements and everything, um, the Russians are right on the verge of victory all the time. I've not really found like the predictions from the more kind of, I'm not going to say pro-Russian, but uh, more sort of anti-NATO, anti-imperialist side to be accurate either. W what's your sense of that? Um, well, I'm, I'm in similar position to you in many ways. I've never claimed to know anything about this. I mean, it's, to be honest, it's a subject I've tended to avoid really <laughs> until now. Mm. Like some of these other people, I, I have to admit, I will confess straight up that I, I also was quite ad I never I didn't write about it but I, I was very adamant that Russia were not about to invade um in 2022 or last year um you know I I, I thought that was just media mm. hype and then of course they proved us massively well, wrong just to reflect on that, on that but I mean I wonder what your reasons for that were my reasons were that it seemed like a very stupid thing to do because the West would have absolutely no interest in bringing any end to the conflict, and it would be Afghanistan 2.0, and Putin is old enough, obviously, to remember Afghanistan, so obviously he's not going to want a, a, a rerun of that. The, the West would obviously channel weapons in 
to Ukraine. And then even if Putin took some sort of control of the country, they would just fill it full of Gladio-style proxy forces forever. So it, it didn't seem like a conflict that could be won to any Russian satisfaction. Yeah, I thought much the same. I thought he wouldn't be stupid yeah. enough to so fall that's what we were very surprised by. It was my major reason that it was probably not going to happen. There's probably... Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, it's easy for, for people who, to you know, might be listening to this conversation thinking somehow we're on the side of Putin, you know, because we're not taking the Western side. That's that's not the case. I'm, I, I mean, I'm just trying to judge it as as I see it. I don't I don't think, you know, I don't assume that Putin's going to do the right thing or he's some good guy or something. I just think that I don't what I don't think is he's an idiot, you know, and um, there's no evidence to think he's an idiot. He seems quite a shrewd guy. So. No, I didn't. My reason for thinking he wouldn't do it was that it didn't make sense to do it for all the reasons mm. you're saying that he would get himself into this quagmire uh, and never get out of it. And to some extent, you know, maybe that's the case. I, I still I still don't know. Um, I mean, how do we ever get out of this now? And I also, to be honest, I think that Putin actually did misunderstand the intentions of the West in the sense that I don't think he realized quite how crazy these uh, neoconservatives who have basically been you know be pulling the strings uh ever since 2014 when victoria newland went to the protest with her cookies and mm. john mccain i think was standing on stage with uh ollie tannybock and uh, you know all this kind of stuff and um you know they, they and lindsey graham's been out there hasn't he and you know all these people basically they're so vested in it they put vast amounts of money into it and they don't seem to have any idea of pulling out of basically what what i see as i mean in their own terms you know if you go back to the pnac people and you know what they were saying and they're uh, rebuilding america's defenses i think it was in there uh, that document but they took they, they talk openly about american primacy you know and i think they use the term pax americana and all this kind of stuff they're basically talking about complete domination uh, full full spectrum, I think, again, is one of their terms, full spectrum dominance of, 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 of the world, essentially. That's their ambition. Now, to reach that ambition, obviously, if Russia and China are not on board politically, so you can't kind of control them in that sense, and you have to take them out of the equation in some way. You know, I think the, the reason why this all started was that, that these neocon faction who sadly have embedded themselves into the heart of American politics ever since 9-11 um, and probably well sometime before I guess they see it as their mission to use whatever means they can to to establish this global supremacy mm. and Brzezinski wrote, wrote about it didn't he in um uh is it the uh, the grand chess mm -hmm. board yeah control of Euroasia and he talked specifically about Ukraine I think at one point being you know the the key place in terms of you know controlling asia mm -hmm. uh, i suppose over the soviet union at the time yeah that's the only conclusion i could come to is something that putin thought that he could force through the minsk accords or something or some version of them after an invasion like he could get people to a table and actually take these agreements which were being completely ignored uh, seriously at that point uh, which would just be like a monumentous miscalculation based on underestimating the insanity of the West or the imperial ambitions of the West. And that's the only thing I could attribute it to, that this is like being just a massive miscalculation on Putin's part. 
Yeah, well, I think that I think there certainly were miscalculations. The Minsk Accords, um, obviously key to this. Again, most people, if you if you talk to the average person on the street and you you talk about this, they don't know anything about the Minsk Accords, and yet the Minsk Accords basically are the re well should be the resolution to this whole thing. I mean, the whole thing should never have started, of course. It should never have been a, uh, this right-wing coup in 2014. But after the war started, quite shortly after, you know, it was 2015, wasn't it, that these um, these yeah. accords were were signed. And what they did was they 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 enabled an off-ramp that would have worked very well, I think, for, for all sides. And basically, the the war would have been ended. There would have been um, kind of I don't know, sort of reconciliation. There would have been oversight from the OSCE, is it? And uh, in fact, there was. And importantly, the the, the Donbass region was basically going to be autonomous. So, uh, or the two regions would be autonomous. So um, they would have their own rights, which basically meant that they would be free from further oppression from these uh, extreme groups uh, in who'd taken power in Kiev at, at that time. Well, that was to that was to Putin's liking. Right, as because people have been surprised by this that Putin wanted the the Donbass regions to stay in Ukraine at that time and not either become independent or join Russia. But the advantage is that he then has influence in Ukraine and has two provinces with this autonomy autonomy uh, that can veto any decision to join NATO. Yes, that's that's exactly it. So it it served the interests of of Europe at the time. I mean, um, Merkel and um, and Hollande were. Were very much involved in in these negotiations and um you know it would have meant peace in in europe basically and like you say from from putin's point of view it would have basically re represented a buffer and it would have meant that ukraine could not join um, nato which is obviously a, a concern you know if you go back to the soviet union times you the soviet union had basically grabbed all the eastern european countries as yeah. a buffer zone essentially you know that their country had been for... marched into twice in the space of 25 years and the previous the latter time of those at the cost of 27 million russian lives to repel the invaders so it's something they were rather sensitive about this this big flat plane because russia doesn't have a good kind of geostrategic defense it's not behind a mountain range or anything the mountains are in poland yeah exactly and and of course where did that second invasion uh or did that the the, the, the invasion of the second world war Operation Barbarossa, where did it go through? Mostly it came through Ukraine, right? So it stands to reason that they'd be concerned about, uh, from you know, fairly recent historical mm. standpoint. I mean, people don't seem to keep in mind that, you know, many, many people in Russia will still remember this. <laughs> it's not that long ago, you know, uh, or certainly have. So, so yeah, going back to what, why, why would you think that Russia would invade in last year when Clearly, they could end up in a dire situation where there's no real reason for the the West not to keep supplying this uh, proxy for a fight against them, basically. And they could be stuck there, like you say, like in a kind of equivalent to Afghanistan yeah. forever. And potentially, that is the situation we're in. It, it's hard to, you know, going back to what you were asking about, um, what do you think about the military um, pronouncements from people like Doug McGregor and Scott Ritter and Brian Belletic? Um, I have to rely on them to some extent. I mean, I can't. I, I, I personally don't go on these Telegram channel, channels to to look at the 
evidence because firstly I wouldn't know what I was looking at but secondly it's 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 kind of I'm, I'm quite sensitive to sort mm. of violent images so I don't I try to avoid them um but um so so you're relying on basically two accounts aren't you really you've got the account of people who are kind of and let's say like you say let's say anti-nato and you've got the account of the western media and you you kind of have to judge the one against the other don't you really mm -hmm. to, to kind of feel your way around what what you what appears to be happening now what i'd say at the moment is that um clearly the west put a lot of emphasis on this what they call a counteroffensive, um which terminology is quite strange in itself really but let's call it counteroffensive. and they did you know repeatedly say that basically they were going to try and push to Crimea and that this you know they were ambitious they were they were going to get there pretty quickly within days really mm. and it's quite evident that what's actually happened is basically this this front hasn't really moved for the last certainly over I think it's over two months isn't it and there's no sign that there's been any movement at all really to speak of on as far, unless I'm missing something uh, of this counteroffensive. so it seems basically to have been a failure and there does now appear to be a shift in the narrative from the west basically admitting to some extent that this has been a failure yeah. there's a grave danger isn't there that the that the west just sees this as sort of all I, and when i say the west what i mean is like the west isn't one sure. entity i'm talking about the neocons yeah. in washington really because they seem to be the ones unfortunately in the seat driving this it seems like there's no end to the escalation for some of these people uh you do wonder what their ambition is really like do they just want to end up you know going to the ultimate extreme of well i don't really want to talk about it really but we all know where it could lead because can they afford can they afford to, and the other thing is yeah can they afford to lose you know can can these neocons have put so much into this this isn't like pulling out of afghanistan which was kind of embarrassing but you know people people forgot pretty quickly some people are saying this would be the end of nato and so on um um certainly it would represent a a sign that the empire is kind of is kind of losing the battle for primacy really. yeah i don't i don't see that as really hurting them let's say russia took over a substantial chunk of ukraine at the conclusion of this i don't think anyone's going to be oh well there's no point in having nato now when a, a non-nato country just got taken over right on nato's doorstep i can only see this leading to a strengthening of nato or in the opposite way if ukraine pushes every last russian out of the country and like what a wonderful success for nato and ukraine's not even a nato member so imagine you know if they had been what we could have done i, I just think nato is going to be strengthened either way by this yeah i mean, I mean as a as a bystander on this really I, I i see your point you know doug mcgregor is very adamant that, that this is pretty much catastrophic for nato but he never actually explains why you know i've got, I've got a lot of time for what he says about it but I, he doesn't actually explain why you know this is i'm not saying he's wrong if you're in a sane world like the idea that the us pumping all these yeah. weapons into ukraine to make it a de facto nato member and therefore sparking a conflict that's been more broadly sparked by NATO's advancement eastward. You could say, yeah, this is a disaster for NATO if you consider NATO to be an alliance that is meant to keep Europe secure. 
and the world at peace, then it's not a good sign. There's a massive war just on the borders of NATO prompted by NATO actions. But that's in a sane world, in like the insane world that neocons live in. It's a massive success for NATO. <laughs> so I don't necessarily think yeah. he's wrong. But it's... <laughs> I mean, I mean, in a way, I, I have the same problem with when I look at all of these wars, because what these people do is they start wars and they never really, you know, in inverted commas, win the wars they just sort of create chaos so you know they did that in afghanistan they did it in iraq they did it in syria they did it in libya <laughs> they're doing it in ukraine to some extent you wonder is it is this just is this the idea really is it just to you know just to create a mess i i don't know i mean with a mess you can carry on selling weapons and you know you can you can use these uh, groups that you've backed to expand into other areas that you want to mess around with and um is this is this you know is this the ambition or is this a sign of failure is it that they've got some plan to to really seize total control of these places but somehow they just they just keep messing it up well no that i mean that is obvious that's obviously what the the goal was in afghanistan say in the 1980s where neocons believe that they brought down the soviet empire they were quite willing to pay a million Afghan lives to achieve that. And that's what you're seeing in Ukraine, that the Ukrainian lives are completely expendable to this imperial goal of taming the bear. Yeah, yeah. So it's conceivable that one side collapses and that brings an end to this, or they run out of men or whatever, but it's also conceivable this just carries on for years into the future. When they're at the most candid, they will tell you that they that this is a this is a proxy war, not just a hobble russia but to to divide it ultimately you know they, they are you can find the statements where they say these things you know to get firstly obviously to get rid of the uh, the evil dictator uh, putin because that will solve all mm. the problems in the world and secondly then to divide it up which is a real ambition of yeah. course um, um and yeah i don't have any doubt that they they really do see that as a as as, as, as what they're aiming for but it doesn't appear to me at least that they're even close to achieving that. I mean, this, it seems, and it is hard to judge, but it does seem that the Russians are riding this out far more successfully than, than they'd anticipated. And I mean, one of the things actually we haven't talked about is it's a financial attack, which was clearly sort of built into this, wasn't it, at the start, you know, that basically once they'd, as I see it anyway, once they'd kind of trapped Putin by getting him to come into this quagmire, essentially, then they were going to basically use that to to go after the economy in every conceivable way. So, you know, massive attacks in sanctions and so on. And it just doesn't seem to have worked. I mean, as far as I can see, the, the Russian economy isn't isn't really um, suffering at all from from these sanctions, whereas we are, mm. of course. And then, of course, you've got the other thing that we haven't talked about, which is, you know, what what's going on with the, the Nord Stream? pipeline which was clearly blown up by western agents I, I i don't know precisely seymour hirsch says um i think he says it's americans and swedes was it i can't remember and then they tried to gloss over that with this whole nonsense story about a yacht or whatever and then they moved on because that story didn't sit so they decided no no we'll put the blame on uh, the ukrainians themselves um which doesn't wash either obviously because the ukrainians let's face it probably couldn't have orchestrated the attack so basically we're left with because originally what we were told was that the russians had blown up their own pipeline yeah. which 
I mean, it's incredible that they, they, if we suggest for a moment that maybe the Americans wanted uh, 9-11 to happen, that's, you know, that's conspiracy theory. But if the, but our news media will go all out to tell you that the Russians probably blew up their own pipeline when that actually makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for a variety of reasons, one of which is they could just turn mm. it off <laughs> if they wanted to. You know, you know what, what was that about, really? Well, apart from attacking Russia at an economic level, it was obviously an attack on Germany and the, and the European Union, really, at, at an energy level. Yeah, so you have the same pattern playing out for the past 100 years now, since Germany unified and became a, a global player of playing it off against Russia. Again, we haven't really seen, we haven't seen the full consequences of, of that action play out yet, I don't think, because, you know, the sort of, the the potential energy crisis that may affect us as well is kind of, if you like, pardon the pun, in the pipeline. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's yet to, it's yet to get here really, because we had quite a mild winter, didn't we? And, you know, and they'd already prepared and they already got stored um, gas. But my understanding is that it's going to be difficult to supply gas this coming winter. Well, that's why I heard a while ago, people seem to stop talking about it. But what, what I find with these neocons is that when they do a project, when they run a project, they tend to, they tend to have a lot of, what's the word, like irons in the fire or whatever, you know, they tend to, there tends to be a lot of different kind of potential uses, purposes for, uh, for this, this single thing. So. You know, if we take, uh, I go back to 9-11 because it's inevitably where I always end up going back. It's clear that it was used to spark these religious wars to, to, to enable imperialist expansion, war profiteering and so on. But it was also used, you know, they signed the Patriot Act immediately after. So it was also uh, to clamp down on civil liberties in America. Similar thing happened here. It was also used to bring in um, internet surveillance. You know, you've got uh, Bill Binney talking about what mm. happened. Um, at the I think it was the NSA he was working for, wasn't it? Immediately in the uh, shadow of 9-11, you've got all these changes taking place. So, I mean, 9-11 was a, obviously an enormous event. It was like a reset, I see it as. But, but to, to some extent, I think whenever the neocons are behind anything, which I presume they were behind that since they wrote the paper, Rebuilding America's Defences, are certainly deeply involved in it anyway you know they're, they're always thinking about like how can we how can we sort of repurpose this or whatever you know like so we, we can cause this grief in ukraine which will cause a problem for the russians and then you know when the when the war's kicked off now we can kind of shut down um energy supply to to europe and that means that we can well i don't want to get too deep into this but we can certainly supply our own liquefied gas uh, potentially so you know we, we we gain advantage there and also of course the other thing is that they've used it for is, is actually just shutting down voices you know mm. just controlling the internet even more going back to what you were saying about covid obviously covid was used as again had a variety of um things that we were done under the um, excuse of of covid and one of which was to shut down alternative voices massively same things happened with Russia, you know, beginning with Russia Gate, and now with you know with this Ukraine war, it's just it's just you know piled on really. They've just they just used it to 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 tighten tighten down on alternative voices even more. And I you know I just 
yesterday I, I discovered that Scott Ritter had been taken down off YouTube. Mm. So, you know, whatever you think of Scott Ritter or any of these people, really, it, it doesn't matter to me. It's like, why why is he not allowed to speak his mind on yeah, YouTube? There's kind of a carryover, right, in that it's perhaps hard to imagine that happening had COVID not happened. But COVID obviously acted to normalise censorship. So is Scott Ritter being taken down from YouTube doesn't seem like as big a thing as it would have felt in 2019, where it wasn't really normal to censor anti-war voices. Yeah, I can, I can, I can slightly push back mm -hmm. on that. I, I, I do agree with you, but I think it starts before COVID. I, th I think you trace it back to Russiagate. Right, really yeah. Because I, I started to notice it personally at that time, and I was writing about it. That because time. Russiagate is an attack on democracy, and therefore it's dangerous to our institutions, and therefore needs to be stopped. Yeah, I see. Russiagate achieved a, a great many things that we're talking about again, really. I mean, for as I saw it, Russiagate really began with the uh, the emails, the Clinton emails or the pedestrian emails or whatever. It was a kind of, partly anyway, it was just an attempt to suppress that, really, you know, like with the Hunter Biden laptop that happened more recently. But pretty soon it became a heightening of, a, of this sort of new Cold War, really, mm -hmm. where basically they were just starting to shut down anyone who... You know, it was McCarthyism, basically. It was just shutting down anyone who they viewed as saying the wrong things. And as you say, threatening democracy, essentially. That's how mm. they would frame it. And then we got COVID. And COVID was obviously a, another tightening of the screw. So you had, you know, you couldn't talk about so many different things, really. You, you know, you couldn't talk about the origins of it. You couldn't talk about the masking. You couldn't talk about the use of alternative treatments. You couldn't talk about vaccines obviously it, get, it comes to something doesn't it where you cannot talk about uh, a medical uh, med medical procedures and stuff uh, because that's somehow deemed a threat to almost national security i don't know but as soon as the 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 uh, the war the the invasion um started the the actual invasion in last year we saw a massive uh, block on you know what they'd see as russian propaganda you know well fair enough okay it probably is i suppose but russia today is kind of russian propaganda but i thought we were like free <laughs> you know we're supposed to be a free society we're supposed to be, we're supposed to rise above it aren't we aren't we supposed to like allow these voices and then we just criticize them <laughs> but no you know we actually just pull them off air yeah there's been a redefining of fundamental values along those lines very much so yeah and i mean we do we do live in strange times i i i'm sure you you have the same problem as me where you kind of find yourself with most conversations you, you can't talk about half the things you'd like to because um you'll either be considered um on the one hand kind of slightly cracked or on the other hand basically evil <laughs> you know if you don't if you don't take the side of the uh, of kiev on every point then basically that makes you you know like you say you're kind of aligning yourself with with hitler essentially you know with putin who is hitler um, even though actually, you know, the people who really support Hitler are actually often on the other side. <laughs> but, I don't get out much. I don't, I don't associate with people too much. You might wind me up that way. No, I try, avoid it. <laughs> try my best. I, I, you know, I, I still like to have one foot mm. in the world. So, <laughs> All right, uh, James, I think we should probably wrap up at that point, if, there's, if that sounds good to you. That seems like, I don't know if you're going to edit it like that, but it almost seemed like an appropriate yeah, point to rise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Thanks very much for coming on. And um, I'll get you back on soon to talk about some of your other blogging and work and such. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great to talk to you as always. Okay, great. You know, Thanks. I enjoyed it.